Let's bow once more together in prayer. As we bow our heads, we may close our eyes, take a posture of prayer, maybe that's standing, maybe that's seated, just whatever will enable your heart to, to just focus on not what's going on around you, not what you carried in with you, but on the one that we came to be in the presence of, the one we came to worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you do that, I want to just read briefly from Psalm 31, which concludes in this way. It says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud one. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. As we go to prayer, as Will just continues to play, as we think about the things that we've heard, the things that we've sung, we've been reminded of the cross, the sacrifice, we've sung some some very important, very significant songs of faith, not just to prepare our hearts, but as an act of worship. So I want you to think about what the psalmist said there, oh, love the Lord, all you godly ones. And right where you are right now, you don't need a whole lot of help with this, I, I hope in any way, but to simply, as your heart's response to the Lord aloud, right where you are, just say, Lord, I love you because. Lord Jesus, I love you because. The challenge here, the admonition is love the Lord well, we can do that in many ways, but we do it first with our hearts and our voices. So again, right now where you are, aloud if you wish, just say, Lord Jesus, I love you because. Let's just tell him that right now. Why it is we love him. What it is you're grateful for. We don't need to be shy. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We stand in the presence of one who loves us unconditionally, who has shown his love to us in countless ways. Lord, we do love you. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what we've been reminded of already this morning, that Jesus identified with us in our loneliness, Father, in our uncertainty. Father, why wouldn't we? fall in love with Jesus over and over again when we realize he truly has identified with us in every way. And having done that, that's the other thing that the psalmist touches on here, which is the, the theme of hope. It says, love the Lord, you godly ones, at the beginning and at the end. He says, be strong, take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. And Father, we do want to determine right now, this morning, as we think of all we've been through, as we anticipate uh, the coming days, Father, we want to, I want to invite each and every one of us right where we are to, as it were, just plant our, our flag on the hill of hope in Jesus Christ. Father, our world is constantly changing. Our circumstances are uncertain and unpredictable, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we right now we want to determine as sons and daughters of yours through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we, Father, of all people will be the ones of great hope. Father, we each come today, we've got joys and sorrows, we've got expectations and we've got worries. Father, we've got praises and we've got baggage and you know it all and you'll love us anyway. And you're willing to receive all that we have to bring you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You invite us to lay it down at your feet and then enable us to see and to look to Jesus. Father, we don't need a word from a pastor today. We don't need a sermon with 
points and a big idea. Father, but we want those things in the coming moments to be the mechanism through which we have a personal encounter with you. Father, your word teaches us to come into your presence, Father, not reluctantly, not casually, but boldly and in a spirit of great expectation. And Father, I, that's what I want to do. That's what I want for my brothers and sisters and friends here today, that we would come expecting, Father, not to hear a sermon, but through a sermon to hear from you. Father, it's a big ask from our perspective but it's an easy one from yours. And so, Father, what we want to ask right now is what we always ask right now. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. We invite him now to come and guide us in truth. We ask him to come and guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, we, we ask the Spirit, that the Spirit right now, that you would, you would deliver us from, from apathy, from pride, from indifference, from worry, from all of these things, Father. And in the next few minutes, as we open your word together, that above all else, you'd help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we walk out these doors into what seems like an uncertain week ahead of us in just a little while, Father, I pray that we will do it knowing we have met with you, we have had our hope renewed, we've had our joy restored, and Father, that we will be strong and courageous, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Father, it is Jesus this morning whom we seek. It is Jesus this morning whom we love. And it is Jesus in whose name we pray, as all God's people said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, boys and girls, you can scoot for Children's Church. This is the time where if you're our guest today and you've got little ones who are anywhere between five years old and second grade, uh, they can go out, spend some time together in God's Word, which is the same thing that we are going to do here. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I want you to take it out. And I want you to meet me this morning. Actually, you're not going to have to go far in at all. I want you to meet me in Genesis chapter 11. I want you to open your Bible with me this morning to Genesis chapter 11, and in just a moment I'm going to explain why we're here and what we're going after, but, but as you're making your way there, I want to reiterate something that was mentioned earlier, and then I want to also mention something by way of encouragement, by exhortation uh, that wasn't mentioned today, but I still want to keep in front of us, and that is just a couple of really important, I think really valuable opportunities that as a church, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have right now. One of them, as you've been hearing about, and we're going to go back next week to our emphasis on evangelism and evangelism shift, and we are still looking to connect as many of you as possible through the evangelism shift initiative into life-to-life groups so that we can together learn what it means on a weekly basis to live as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have not yet gotten involved or been sought out for a life-to-life group, I want you to check that table out, or there may still be some cards in the pews. I'm not sure about that, but we want as many of you as possible to get connected in that way. That's coming up. Some of those have started now. The other thing I want to do is just to to, to reiterate what Ted mentioned earlier, that this Wednesday night is our monthly Fresh Encounter prayer gathering. I think this is going to be, I mean, I think they're all important, okay? I like them all. I think they all have great value, but I think this is one that's going to be extra important and special for a couple of reasons. And so I want you right now, I'm giving you permission to take out your phone, all right, and set a reminder to join us over in the prayer room this Wednesday 
Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. For one thing, as you know, it'll be the day after the election, and we may all need to decompress, okay? And there's no better way to decompress than by getting together and seeking God's face in worship and in prayer. And I really, really want to encourage you. We're going to go to a passage. Actually, it's the passage that with the senior high class that we looked at today, a passage on worry, a passage on where our hope and our confidence is found. And regardless of how things go, we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but regardless of how things go, I think the best thing we can get do is, is get together in the presence of the Lord and seek the face of the Lord as soon afterwards as we possibly can. So write it down, remember it, be there. I also want to encourage you to be there because we're going to do something, got a new little twist uh, this, this month starting this year, is that now the youth group is going to join us as well. So they meet on Wednesday night. They're going to come do their games and get their snacks and get all sugared up or whatever else it is they do. And then they're going to come join us and pray with us as well. And I think that's going to be really important and really, really valuable. And I'm excited that they're going to be there. Uh, So I want you to do it as well. Some of you, you're bringing your kids to youth group anyway. All you have to do is walk across the street. So bring them here. Meet us over there. I am anticipating a very, very special time together there as well. So that's end of commercial. It was an important commercial, but that's over now. We want to get into God's Word and what it is we are here for today. A couple of weeks ago, as I said, we finished our first little mini-series on evangelism. Next week, we're going to begin another one that will take us the rest of the way through the month. But this morning, because there was such an easy sort of pause in the proceedings and, and, and because of what is ahead of us in just a couple of days... I thought it was important, I think the Lord put it on my heart, and the elders agreed that we should take a moment, take a morning, that is, a message, and talk about just what it is we're about to step into as a nation and as a people this week. And here's why. Because for months now, we have been told, and again, this is not new information to any of us, but for months now, we have been told in a whole variety of ways from both sides of the political aisle that this Tuesday's election, the presidential election, is the most consequential one in all of American history. We have been told repeatedly that Western civilization is at a tipping point. We have been told repeatedly that if it doesn't go the way that you or someone else thinks it should go, the country as we knew it or have known it is lost forever. We've been hearing these things. We've had these messages pounded into us over and over and over again. Now, only time, and I believe not a little bit, but a lot of it, is going to tell us how accurate any of those prophecies will prove to be. We don't know what's going to happen in the days to come. But in order for us as followers of Christ to walk Christianly, to walk as followers of Jesus Christ into Tuesday's election and whatever the days after it hold, we are going to go to a story in the Old Testament A story in the Old Testament in which, as you're about to see in a moment, the entire course of human history was changed forever. And the impact of which you and I still feel in our lives or experience, in one sense, each and every day. It is the story, if you'll look in your Bible with me at Genesis chapter 11, of what we know as the Tower of Babel. 
the story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. Now, I'm going to read the story for you. You're going to follow along in a moment. But just so you know where we're jumping in, because we're sort of parachuting in to the middle of some broader proceedings that have been taking place, here's what you may want to know by way of context about the story of the Tower of Babel. Number one, it occurred, we believe, this is a story that occurred somewhere between the years 23 and 2200 B.C., so 4,000, give or take, years ago is when this story took place. Now, most, many if not most, Bible scholars believe that being, having taken place around 23 to 2200 B.C., that that was actually only about 100 years after the great flood of Noah meaning that Noah himself would have still been around. The Bible says that he lived 350 years after the flood came and went. So we're going into that particular era or time of biblical history. And in an objective sense, what this story in God's Word shows us, what it does is it explains the origin of all the different nations that filled the face of of the earth. You would see this if you began reading the chapter before and you read on through the rest of chapter 11. It's a long list of genealogies of the descendants of Noah and his sons and his daughters and how all these people groups and nations came to be or who they were. Well, this is the story of how they came to be. And it begins in Genesis 11, verse 1, and it goes down through Genesis 11, verse 9. So if you have your Bible, I want you to follow along because this is what the Word of God says. Because now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they, the people, journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, by us, that's a, an early reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth earth. Now, in one sense, I think in an objective sense, a story like that, that particular story, would seem to have very, very little to do with our presidential election and all that surrounds that, as I said, some 4,000 years later. In one sense, it doesn't sound much at all like what we're stepping into this week, but in another sense, I would submit to you that it very much is. Because in, in a way, uh, one of the ways to look at the story of Babel, at least uh, sort of in, 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 a, um, in, a, in, in exactly what was going on here, is to recognize that the story of the Tower of Babel began in a time of massive human pride. When people were consumed with themselves and what they could do. 
And in very short order, it resulted in that time of massive human pride when God intervened, then became a time of massive human confusion. It began in pride, and it led to confusion. And with that sort of sense or awareness of what's going on here in mind, I believe that has some some great similarities to where we are today. And as a result, what I hope to show you that I have found in this story are four things that you and I need to remember as election day approaches. Four things from this story that begins with pride and ends in confusion that you and I can take to heart and take hold of as followers of Jesus Christ as this Tuesday's election and whatever follows it approaches. And the first one is this, and it is easily the most important. The first thing this story can help us to remember is to remember that God is almighty. The first thing this story helps us remember is to remember that our God is almighty. Look again at your Bible, look again specifically at verse 1. Because when verse 1 says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, uh, in a sense what we're seeing there is a picture of human unity, all right? The people were unified together, and unity is always a good thing, right? Yes, except when it's not. And in this case, it definitely wasn't. Because what unity did here, the unity of the people, they had the same language, the same words, the same purposes, the same ideas. Unity in this instance was a bad thing because it bred autonomy, a spirit of independence, a spirit of pride that said, and I don't know if they used these words, but it was certainly the attitude of most people's hearts, we can do anything we want and we don't need God's help. We don't need this God's help. We don't need any God's help. Why? Because we're unified and we're strong and we're capable. We're proud. And verse 4 shows us how they meant to prove it. Look again at verse 4. So they said, come. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to show you why that was such a bad thing to do. Okay, we're going to get to that in a moment. But for now, let's simply acknowledge, based on verse 4, that these were a people who believed themselves to be A, self-important, and be self-sufficient. What we're hearing there is a people who are self-important, they're consumed with themselves, and self-sufficient, they can do whatever they want. However, here's the thing. While in that spirit and in that moment, they, they were dismissive of any need for God's help, any involvement from God whatsoever, what verse 5 shows us next is that they did not escape his notice, that God knew exactly what they were up to. Look again at what it says in verse 5. It says, so the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, the Bible says in many, many places that God is omniscient, okay? That means God knows everything all the time in absolute and exhaustive detail. God knows absolutely everything that's going on. He always knows what everyone's doing, and the crew building the tower, what we refer to as the Tower of Babel, they were no exception to that. God knew what they were up to. God saw the plan being formed. God saw the construction begin and, and proceed, 
And so that is why it is with, pay attention to this, it is with deliberate irony that the writer says in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which they had built. Because again, to where did they plan to build their tower? They said, let's build a tower up into where? We're going to build it all the way up to heaven. I don't know if they meant that literally or metaphorically, but that was their plan. And yet, isn't it kind of cute that then it tells us that the God of heaven had to come down to see what they were up to, right? That's not an accident. We're supposed to to take notice of what an ironic thing that is. And here's why. Because while the people were mighty, God is almighty. The people were mighty, but God is almighty. Not only is he omniscient, does he know everything, but the Bible also clearly teaches that he is omnipotent. He is in control of everything. He possesses all power. And here's why I I bring that to our attention, because I want to ask you, could we all agree as followers of Jesus to remember that this Tuesday? Could we agree to remember that, that while men are mighty, God is almighty? That whatever we do, however much any one of us or any group of us or any nation in all of history accomplishes, that God still has to come down to see all this great stuff that we think we are doing or have done. Could we remember as Tuesday morning dawns that as it says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And that as Psalm 75 adds to that as well, that he, God, is the righteous judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. He is in charge. He is almighty. And so rather than allowing yourself in the days to come to be ruled and to have your emotions run roughshod over by the prophets of perpetual political doom, we will wake up and remember God is almighty. And we will trust him to do what he knows is best. That's the first thing this story shows us, but it's not the only thing. It tells us, number one, the Tower of Babel tells us that we need to remember that God is almighty. The second thing, or a second thing it shows us or invites us to remember, is to recognize to remember the toxicity of pride. A second thing it I believe, urges us to do is to recognize, to remember the toxic nature of human pride. Now, in what will be the closest I am going to come today to making an openly political statement, as I see it, we currently have the following situation before us in our nation. We have one party that is beckoning us to put the bulk of our hope for the future in the government. And we have another, the other political party that is beckoning us to put the bulk of our hope for the future in ourselves. Trust the government to take care of it or get out there and trust yourself to do what you want to get done. Now, that's not exactly a nuanced take. That's not exactly a fresh, hot take either. But... The reason I bring it up is because as Christians, what we need to be on, regardless of what your preferences are, regardless of what your political convictions are, could we again, once again as believers in Jesus Christ, this morning recognize that neither of them are beckoning us to put the bulk of our hope for the future in the Lord. 
Now, I realize that's not their job, okay? They are not a church. They are not the church. They are not a parachurch organization. But I think it still needs to be said. They're not asking you to put your hope in the Lord. And, and I think we need to take note of that because there is this sneaky temptation that creeps into our lives, and it especially rears its ugly head this time of year, and it is to share or, or, or even reverse our allegiances to God and country or to God and party. It's so easy to get them mixed up with one another. And again, I think that was that, that idea of having it all mixed up and, and, and pride driving, it was the issue here in verse 6. The Lord said, look at your Bible, verse 6. Behold, they are, verse 6, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now, this is God speaking, and he says, And nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, God did not mean that literally, okay? I don't think so. I don't think God was saying that they literally, whatever they put their minds to, it's going to be successful. But here's what I think God did mean in that statement, that if this project, this tower project they had undertaken succeeded, all right? If they were able to, to whatever they thought meant to build it up into heaven, it would only serve to fuel their fires of spiritual independence. See, we did that without God. We did that with no one else's help. What else should we try to do without God or a God, whatever they believed in, without that kind of help? In other words, here's my point. It wasn't the tower God had a problem with. God does not have a problem with tall buildings, God had a problem with the motive of men's hearts for building it. It wasn't the building, it was the motive. And that is what he judged in verse 7. Come, God said, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not be able to understand one another's speech. Now, in our third point, I'm going to explain why that is specifically or particularly what God did, that that was the nature of his judgment. But the thing we need to hear, see here in this point is that the reason judgment fell at all and the reason it fell so very quickly is because it is meant to illustrate to us, as I said, the toxic nature of human pride. That if pride is left to run rampant, it leads to all kinds of trouble and destruction. And God said, I'm stopping it now before it goes further. What does that have to do with Tuesday's election? Here's what I think it has to do with Tuesday's election. It ought to remind us, listen, that even if you, I don't know what you want, but even if you get everything you want on Tuesday, you go to bed just so happy Tuesday night. Everything I wanted, everybody I wanted won. It all went my way. Whew, that was so good. As a believer, there is no place whatsoever for self-vindication, for self-validation, self for gloating. I don't think there's even all that much of a reason to say, hey, it's all going to be okay now. It is not a cause to jump out on social media and say, see, I told you so. Pride is ugly. Pride is destructive. Pride, it, pride is the, the root of the first sin, and it's at the root of every sin, and it destroys relationships between God's people. Listen to me, if you get everything you want, you thank God, sleep well, and get up Wednesday morning and keep serving him. 
That's all we need to do. That's all we're called to do. Why? Because Wednesday morning, I don't know who's going to be present, but Jesus will still be Lord. He will still be Lord, and our hope must be found in him. So what does this story teach us? Number one, it reminds us that God is almighty. Number two, it reminds us that pride is toxic. The third thing it compels us to do, I believe, or it can compel, and I believe should compel us to do, is this story helps us or beckons us to remember our assignment. To remember the fact that as followers of Jesus, we have been given a specific assignment. Let me ask you a question, okay? Just play, imagine this for a moment. How much would you pay to attend a football game, to go to a football game where all that the two teams on the field ever do is huddle? That's what they do. It's not that they don't have elite athletes who can get the job done. It's not that they don't have an inch-thick playbook with all kinds of strategies and ideas and designs for how we can score and how we can keep the other team from scoring, for how we can go about pursuing victory. It's just that all they ever ever do is they, they suit up, they huddle up, and in the huddle they talk about all the great stuff that they've prepared for and all the great things they've learned all week long, and they just stay in the huddle. I realize that's a silly question, right? That's a ridiculous scenario. But at the same time, I think it can help us grasp the nature of God's judgment here in verse 8. Because actually, step back just for a moment to verse 7. Here's what God said again. Here's the nature of his judgment. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, when we read those words, and I realize we have to stop and think about this. This isn't maybe a natural thing. But what we ought to do when we are studying the Bible, if we're attentive students of Scripture, we read those words, we should get to the end of verse 8, and then draw a straight line back to Genesis chapter 1, which we're going to do right now, so turn to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, God said, let's go down there, let's confuse their language and scatter them so that they will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you draw a line, if you follow a line back to Genesis chapter 1, here's what you find beginning in verse 27. After creating everything else that God made in the universe, it says this, God, Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, go back to Genesis 11, because what did the people say they were going to do in verse 4? Look closely. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be, what's the next word? Scattered over the face of the whole earth. Which when you link this to what we saw, to God's original commandment in Genesis chapter 1, what you realize, what we discover, is that at the very least, they were acting in direct opposition to, if not ultimately, open rebellion against God's assignment. God said, there's one thing I want you to do as my people. Scatter. Multiply. Subdue. 
So that from every corner of the globe, every point on the planet, there are people giving glory to me, people relating to me, spreading the kingdom of God. And that is why, because when God said go, they said no. That is why the nature of his judgment was to confuse and to divide and force them to scatter. Because they weren't willing to do what he wanted them to do. Now, we've been talking a lot around here lately about our assignment, haven't we? We just spent a few weeks, and we're going to spend many more. That we have an assignment of our own. And guess what? It's a whole lot more important than getting out the vote. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore into all the world. All the world, making disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to to observe all that he commanded us. That is our assignment. That is what our lives and our mission is all about. Listen, I'm not saying that that the political process is, is unimportant and that we should remove ourselves entirely from it. I am not saying elections don't matter. I am not saying that as Christians, we ought to make it our aim to live outside and even above the political fray. What I am saying, however, is this, that given our assignment, the Great Commission, we should actually break the huddle once in a while. Once in a while. This is the huddle, okay? Wednesday night will be the huddle. Your small group, your life-to-life group, your, your Wednesday night student ministry group, that's the huddle. But we have to break the huddle and go out into the world and not, listen to me, not, stop, not look as we are, are inclined to do, to look at people as red or blue. To relate to them, to decide how I'm going to relate to them based on what's in their front yard. No. We are to relate to them with God's help and the guidance of the Spirit in a way that we seek to discern, are they saved or lost? Do they know Jesus? Well, then let me encourage them. Do they not know Jesus? Let me live as a witness before them. That is our assignment. And it's so easy to forget. But this story reminds us, God wants his people to scatter. This is wonderful. This is where it starts. But it's only where it starts. We have an assignment. And God finds ways. I think what the story also tells us, that if we won't break the huddle, he'll break it for us. He'll compel us. Because if we won't go into the world, then we're, we're living in opposition to his commandment. And we don't want to do that. We've got a good thing, and we want more people to know about the good thing. So we need to remember that God is almighty. We must remember that pride is toxic. We must remember we have an assignment. And then fourth and finally, here's a little more good news. The story reminds us that God always wins. We must remember that God always wins. Now on its face, the Tower of Babel story It's relatively brief for how significant it is in the scripture. And in verse 9, it just sort of fades to black as a scene of mass confusion. People can't communicate. They can't figure out what's happened. They don't know what to do. And and it's just chaos everywhere. In fact, the the word Babel itself, we believe it's sort of rooted in the same Hebrew term as the Hebrew word for confusion. I mean, literally, we could say this was the Tower of Confusion. And, And that's appropriate because if you and I had been there, that's exactly how we would have felt too. Suddenly we can't talk to each other. 
Some of them have no idea what's trying to be said. And, and sooner or later, maybe the confusion would subside, but you know what I think it would have given way to next? I think it would have given way to despair. Because life was forever changed. They didn't see it coming. But we know something the Tower of Babelites didn't. Because we have all of God's word, and we have the rest of the story. And what we know is this, that despite the chaos and the uncertainty and the, the abs, I'm sure that, that sense of despair and hopelessness, what we know from the scriptures is that God was still at work. God was still very much at work. And in fact, it was through their proud rebellion and through, as a result of his own stern discipline, there was a greater plan unfolding. God was taking the sin and rebellion of women and men and still managing to turn it around for his own glory. And, and by scattering people across the face of the earth, though it seemed like the worst possible thing that could have happened, by scattering them abroad over the face of the earth, down through history. Like I said, this story still touches our lives today. Lives have been changed. Hope has been found in Christ. And God continues to get glory. My point is this, God won. It looked hopeless, it looked despondent, but God won. Because, verse 9, by confusing the language of the whole earth, and from there scattering them abroad over the face of the whole earth, what did God do? He got the people back to doing what they were supposed to have been doing all along. God wins. And whatever happens this week, guess what? God's not going to take his first loss. God is not going to take a loss this week. It doesn't matter what happens in that sense. It matters what happens in terms of what, how it impacts our lives. But it doesn't matter in the sense of what God is up to. God will not take a loss this week. He will not take a loss in the weeks that follow. Somehow and in some way, we may not get to see it this side of heaven. We, we, have, to, we have to be okay with that. But somehow God's going to get the win. So here's what I want you to do. Relax. <laughs> Exhale. Settle down. He's got it. He's going to win. He's going to get the glory. It may get worse before it gets better. It probably gets worse in fact, the Bible says it's going to get worse before it gets better. But you know what the Bible also says? In the end, God wins. And as a believer, you're on the winning side. There's good news. Now, with all of that said, here's what I want to close. I want to offer you in closing two words of advice, which you can do with whatever you please. And I want to give you a big idea. All right? Two words of advice and a big idea. Word of advice, number one, do with it what you will. Vote. Just my heart to you, vote. Why? Because the Bible says to? No. But because you and I are blessed to live in a land where, unlike most of the other nations in all of human history, we have a say in the process. It doesn't feel like a big one, but it matters. And if God gives you a privilege and an opportunity, the last people, as I said, we should not be removing ourselves from the process of what's going on in our culture. We should be on the front lines. Not fighting for red or blue, but but living well for Jesus. Living well for Jesus. And this is one way we can do it. I think you ought to vote if you haven't already. 
Secondly, second word of advice, certainly in another sense, in a sense more important. Can I urge you to spend Tuesday with Jesus? Tuesday is election day. That's what we're talking about. Spend it with Jesus. I know you still got to go to work, school, got kids to take care of, diapers to change, whatever it is you've got to do. Spend the day with Jesus. For example, here's one way you can do this. I did this four years ago, and it, and it, it made a legitimate difference. I would invite you, this is going to sound very hard to some of you, do a media fast. Just do a media fast. Still get to eat, okay? You don't have to do a food fast. So eat all you want, maybe to compensate. But listen, here's the thing, because what's fasting supposed to do? It's not, God, see how much I'm suffering, give me what I want. That's not fasting. Fasting is use the urge that you would normally submit to as an opportunity to fix your eyes on Jesus. So think how much time you'll spend with the Lord Tuesday if every time you'd normally pick up your phone, every time you'd normally run to your computer, every time you'd normally turn on the radio, every time you'd run to the TV. Listen, nobody's going to know what's going on anyway. It's all just speculation and talking heads. Imagine how much time you'd spend with Jesus if every time you wanted to jump on Twitter, instead you just paused to worship the Lord, to remember that he's almighty. What if every time you were inclined to do those things, you took an opportunity to repent of your fear because he's in charge? What if you just took those opportunities, all those little bits and chunks or maybe those big, long stretches where you would be, be engaged in the process to surrender your expectations and just say, Holy Spirit, rule my heart. Listen, I have a hunch, and my experience is only one. My experience is that when evening rolls around and the results start coming in, go ahead and turn on the TV. I think your heart will be ready. You'll be in a much better place to say, you know what, win, loser, or whatever, I know where my hope is found. And God is in charge, and you can watch it happen from a place peace. Now here's the big idea, and it is this, that regardless of who wins, regardless of whatever follows, as believers in Jesus Christ, two things will always be true even on Tuesday, and they are this, we will always need God's help, always. No matter what we get, we'll need God's help, and we are never without his hope. We always need his help. We are never without his hope. Father, I pray that in the coming days when everybody's going to have an opinion and everywhere we look, there's going to be joy, there's going to be gloom. Father, there's going to be anger, there's going to be rejoicing. We... It's just a great big mess, Father. Pride will lead to confusion. Father, I pray that we will. This is an opportunity, and I pray that you will help us to seize it, to live Christianly in the midst of great darkness. Father, you know the desires of our hearts. You know that, that many of us, most, maybe all of us, have a, a preference, a passion 
or how this is all going to turn out. And, and Father, there's a sense in which, you know, you win some and you lose some, and that's the way life goes. But as believers, we have a hope that endures. Father, help those of us who get what we want this week, whoever that may be and whatever that may mean, to remember that even Wednesday morning we still need your help. And Father, whether we, we get what we want, whether it goes the way we think it should or it shouldn't, help us to remember that we are never without your hope. Father, we have read the last page. You win, and we're going to be there. Father, I pray, boy, do I pray today, Father, that you would take the things of truth and seal them to our hearts and take all the rest and let it be forgotten. Father, that we might walk out these doors not thinking about politics, but looking to Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again and who has promised that all will be well. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.